Hello, my name's John Busby. I play in a band called Halfway. We are based in Brisbane. We've been together since 2000 for about 20 years. We made six albums. We've just done a tour of the East Coast. Um, I'm up in Darwin at the moment. I've been splitting my time in the last 18 months between Darwin and Brisbane, so it's been a lot of travel. We have a rehearsal room in Brisbane, and I try and get down there every few weeks to go through the new stuff and the old stuff with the band, um, unless there's a global pandemic, which there is right now. So I'm in ISO at the moment, and it gives you a chance to reflect. So we're going to look at the reasons why we've been in the band so long, why we do what we do. And the best way to do that, I think, is to go through the albums. They've been the centre of our musical world, our attention and focus, for the best part of 20 years. It's a long time. So overall, we've made six records. The first in 2004, Farewell to the Fainthearted. The second was called Remember the River in 2006. The third came out in 2010. It was called An Outpost of Promise. The fourth record was called Any Old Love and it came out in 2014. The fifth record was called The Golden Halfway Record and it came out in 2016. And our most recent record is called Rain Lover and it came out in 2018 through ABC Music. And for matters of transparency, I think I should say before we start that the story of the band is is not one where there's a big break at the end or a thing where or a situation where we win. It's just about the work. There's no great narrative arc. It's just about the next record. And the goal for each record is just to make the record we want to make without any compromise and to generate enough interest to make another record free us up. I just thought I should get that out there. When it comes to bands and music, the currency always seems to be popularity or money or something like that, and this is not one of those stories. Don't get me wrong, we've had our fair share of wins, and you have to to be in a band for 20 years, but we just do our own thing. To us, each record's more important than the last, and uh, on we go. So, without waffling too much, Let's start by going through the first halfway record, 2004's Farewell to the Fainthearted. Okay, so the band started, well, halfway started in the year 2000, and uh, it started as a result of a breakup of another band I was in called St. Jude, We're like a 90s indie rock band, and uh, we put out an EP and stuff on uh, Rubber Records, the Melbourne label. Did a couple of things, did some touring up the East Coast and stuff, so it's quite a good band and it had the core of uh, Halfway in it essentially. Um, Chris Dale was playing bass, Alwyn Horton on drums, uh, Chris Hess on guitar and myself on guitar. Uh, Chris Dale and myself were doing the singing, so similar to, to what Halfway ended up as the eight piece, seven piece. And yeah, there were. Uh, a few of us were originally from Rockhampton. Chris, Alwyn and myself are all um, Rockhampton guys and um, we knew each other from bands up there. We all came down separately but we reconnected in Brisbane. It was a good time, mid-90s Brisbane. 
um, some terrific bands around, Screen Feeder, people like that, um, were a big influence on us at the time. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we toured with that band and we did our best. And essentially, as the 90s came to a close, the two Chris's left um, for work and other reasons and family and the usual commitments. And this resulted in Elman and myself uh, looking for someone else, you know, to continue with. And uh, we found Ryan Walsh. Uh, he was a friend of ours from another good band called Jetson 77. And yeah, through Ryan Walsh, we met Ben Johnson. They were school friends. And Benny was only just learning to play the bass, but he was picking it up so fast. Music just came as natural as rain to him. There was the four of us, basically, in a room, uh, just sort of picking up the pieces. And I think the original idea was to use a couple of records that we'd, that we'd listened to and liked as signposts. Um, there was Mercury Rev's Deserter Songs. We were loving that. Flaming Lips, Soft Bulletin was another one. And Steve Earle's Transcendental Blues. So even though we weren't in a position to make records like that or equipped to make records like that that were, we'd set a goal and it was a good plan it was as good a plan as you're gonna have in a in a rock and roll band and also some of the bands we were listening to had bigger lineups you know five six seven pieces so we thought it might be more interesting and more fun to try that which was spot on it was more fun and essentially, we were just rehearsing in the valley one night, and Chris Dale just walked into rehearsal, grabbed a guitar. That was it. Uh, he was back, and it was great to have him back. We've been friends since we were teenagers. And eventually, Chris Hess followed suit and also came back. So basically, the lineup was the four guys from St. Jude, uh, Ryan Walsh, and Ben Johnson. And uh, it kind of dispels that myth of it being a Rockhampton thing, because really, you know, when we started the band, uh, we weren't in Rockhampton. We'd left by five years, and uh, it was very much a Brisbane thing, really, by then. Just a band with a few Rockhampton people in it. Yeah, so uh, they came back. That was fantastic. And um, we pushed on, edged our way towards the first record. So the next big turning point in the band's lineup was finding the Fitzpatrick brothers. They were playing in Tom's Bar below Dooley's on Brunswick Street in Brisbane. And our rehearsal room was just down the road in the valley. So we'd go down to Tom's after and the brothers were playing in some of the great Irish bands that played down there at Tom's. It was full of good people, good musicians, good drinkers. It was an incredible place in the late 90s and early 2000s Tom's. Some of the best times of my life were spent there. And I really should preface this story with the fact that our connection to the Fitzies began with Ben Johnson. He was school friends with the brothers. And, and Brian as well, they're all school friends. Noel actually joined first on steel and banjo and Liam joined a little later. I think Liam might have thought that these indie rock guys weren't quite trad enough for him, which is probably fair. But thankfully they both joined in time to be on the first record which was great, because they made it better. So now we had Noel Fitzpatrick on pedal steel and Liam Fitzpatrick on mandolin and banjo. Same as it is now, 2020. 
And that was a big turning point for us. Once they were in, it was all systems go for halfway. It was a great time because, uh, you know, we sort of had this handful of records as an idea and then all these players and good, they were just good people. You know, that was essentially it. They were, they were cool players and cool people. And they, they were just good people to be around and uh, they still are. It's been one of the great pleasures of my life, really, to be able to share uh, all this time with uh, quality people like that. It's fucking amazing, really. And yeah, from like 2000, when we first got together, it was just a great time. Uh, just a lot of good things happening at once. We were writing and we were playing at a little club called The Healer in the Valley. It was an old church and our shows were going pretty well. And we set up a rehearsal room at uh, my mum's place in Bowen Street in Windsor. Uh, so my family, uh, my band was there. Met my wife about the same time, Shannon. And uh, it's just a lot of good stuff at the same time, all happening at once, all in one little orbit. I bought a great car as well. 1970 Valiant VG, red. It was pretty good. It was like... A, Everything was just good. And, you know, in a lot of ways it still is. But uh, that was the first time that things really started to come together, I think. There was just something about the like-mindedness of the band. It was a real code, something about them as people. The way they locked together and the way they acted and did stuff. Uh, they were good people. They'd be my best friends if I wasn't in the band. I was just lucky to meet them. Yeah, it was a hell of a time, 2000 to 2003, making the first record at the uh, at the first halfway house in Bowen Street. We uh, set up a little studio, first version of uh, Pro Tools. We sort of set up a little thing where we would uh, try and record acoustic songs in the house. It wasn't like an old Queenslander. That's the way we made the first record or edge towards making the first record we recorded a lot of demos and things at home and uh tried to get serious about getting a good sound and then we uh recruited a, an old friend of ours of uh saint jude's from uh, the 90s wayne Connolly. he'd made the first three umi records and a ton of great records he's an iconic australian engineer and a good friend he doesn't make bad records so uh, we uh recruited him to do the rock songs at sunshine studios so that was the plan, at least. That was the recording side of it. Uh, Wayne on the rock songs and us on the uh, acoustic bits and pieces. And that plan was purely from a financial point of view. If we could have done the whole record with Wayne, we certainly would have. Uh, we just only had, a, I don't know, a few grand or whatever. So uh, the idea was just to rehearse hard and be ready for when he came out from Sydney and uh, hit the studio and put down all the beds and... Yeah, to see how far we could get with it all. So the band at the time, around 02, 03, we were playing at the Healer. We are about to hit, you know, our first hurdle, I guess, as a lineup. Ryan Walsh deciding to leave. Um, it was a blow because he was a big part of the live band at the time and went well he was writing and, and singing. And when we played on stage, he was front and centre and Chris and I would wing him. Stage left, stage right type thing with Walshy in the centre. So it was a big blow when he left. And it wasn't really because of any of the typical rock cliches. It was just, uh, well, he's still a writer and 
music maker now. He does music for film and stuff. So he just had his own world going on at the same time. And he kind of realized that, you know, that's what he wanted to pursue. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough one. I mean, he was still on some BVs and bits and pieces for that record. But yeah, covering him live was, was hard at the time because he was pretty dynamic uh, as a live performer. But in another way, it was good for us. It made us work a lot harder um, trying to put the songs together for the rest of the record and focus on just the songs more than live stuff. So around 2002, 2003, uh, Ryan and the band parted ways. It was tough. The band was so tight and we were having a really good time, but sometimes change just comes. I mean, at the time, even Christmas Day would be all hanging out together. It was an incredible thing with my family and my friends and the band, and I guess the first record is a document of that. And Ryan's still a great friend of the band. He's uh, filled in for us a few times over the years, even as recently as last year when we had the Teenage Fan Club show. He was there at the start and he's still around. Sometimes it's good to go back to go forward. And around that time, Chris Hess came back to join the band. So we had the four members of St. Jude, plus Ben Johnson, and the two Fitzpatrick brothers. So it was a seven-piece for the first record. And we were winged a little, but it was such an exciting time. The songs were coming along nicely, and we were hanging for Wayne to come up from Sydney. So we booked a week of recording at Sunshine Studios, Fortitude Valley. So I guess you'd say that was the plan or the outline as to how we made Farewell to the Fainthearted, and what the build-up to it was, and how we put together the first lineup of Halfway. The next bit is the songs how they came together, what they were about, and uh, why we did it. So here we go. So the initial idea was just to combine the indie rock background we had with the previous band with country and roots and folk. And now that we had the Fitzpatricks, well, that really helped because they were steeped in that world. So uh, it was our job to absorb it. And I was a big fan of Dylan and the Birds, so I was all in. And I was also getting into some 70s AM radio stuff I'd heard from being in the car as a kid. Stuff like Tom T. Hall and Gordon Lightfoot. My dad was a big Gordon Lightfoot fan. When I was a kid, um, my dad was working out west, building culverts and railway bridges and things. And... Uh, we were living out of Blackwater and Bar Calder. And we were living in these little places, little towns. And the guys in the crew were always playing 70s country music. I'm not sure why, whether it was just that they were in the country. They are mostly city guys, I think. But they were playing Charlie Rich and George Jones and Freddie Fender. That sort of thing. So it was a combination of the pop music and indie rock I loved as a kid. With Freddie Fender and... Uh, Roots. I guess that was it. So in regard to writing the songs, the idea was just to focus on the narrative. Give the band plenty of space to do its thing. And yeah, just focus on the story. 
and where possible avoid obviousness. And that can be tricky. I remember reading as a kid some interviews with great writers and they talk about using personal experience but that's quite difficult to do because you know when you write a song often you're, you're retreading old ground and I was trying to avoid that in the lyrics so uh, I took the idea that um, no detail was too small essentially that was it and uh, we were going to lock these lyrics and, and a, a part of this record into where we were from, Rockhampton. There are a bunch of us from Rockhampton and also Brisbane. Uh, use those two cities as uh, anchor points for the record and um, that's what we did. When I look at the record and I almost instantly think about Brisbane and Rockhampton. So we just tell stories, general stories. Uh, a kind of, I've always liked stories about just people. Well, they don't have to be heroes. They're just people, everyday stories. And looking at the track listing now, Wayne's songs and the ones we recorded, they seem to mix together pretty well. They still work. I'm happy we did it that way. So patience back, drunk again, miles and miles, something for yourself, sure uncertain, and CQ Skyline were all done with Wayne. He did a good job. And all the more raggedy sounding ones like uh, Compromise for a Country Girl, Get Gone, Timetables, Six Hours from Brisbane, uh, Six Pack. They were all done by us um, in the old Queenslander, Halfway House. So we essentially did the acoustic songs ourselves and the rock songs or the ones that we thought had trickier drums we did with Wayne. So going through the songs, I think the ones that use geography and place and time, they seem to have stayed in my mind the most. And they're probably the ones I return to, to play live the most as well. Songs like Compromise for a Country Girl, Miles and Miles, Six Pack, Six Hours in Brisbane and CQ Skyline. They all have those familiar threads through them, geography, etc. It was also the first time we had the idea to use one character across a couple of songs or one place across a few songs. I know we weren't the first to, uh, to use it, but uh, at the time we were pretty convinced we were. <laughs> but overall, I'm happy with the record. I was happy with it then, and I'm happy with it now. I think it came together pretty well. There are a lot of songs on it I'm really proud of, like uh, Patience Back. It was the first single off the record and uh, ended up getting on rotation at Triple J. And we didn't know at the time, but that would be pretty much our last run at the radio. First and last. <laughs> and I almost forgot to mention, we had some great guest players on this record. Uh, Claire Fitzpatrick, the Fitzy's sister, she played accordion on Call Anytime. Matt Davis from Jersey played on Miles and Miles. He did like a cool descending guitar line on it. It's really nice. We'd become kind of pretty close to bands like Jersey and Knievel through playing some shows in the uh, early 2000s. We also had some help making that record from Mick Bukowski you know, from Vibrafield Studios in Inala. He helped us do uh, pre-production and some overdubs and things, so he was vital in it as well and helped us mix. Oh, I almost forgot to mention there's a secret track on the album. We do a cover of Willin' by Little Feet, Lyle George. We had just heard Steve Earle's version of it and uh, thought we'd have a quick 
run out of ourselves, so we just tacked it onto the end of the record, last minute type thing. It just seemed like a good idea, so we did it. Um, it spoke to us, I guess you'd say. So the next thing was we had to get the record out into the world, and uh, back then it was just mailing CDs. There wasn't really uh, any other way from my memory. Maybe there was, but uh, we certainly went across it. So we uh, sent some CDs out to the usual people, and we got a call back from Stuart Coop. He was really keen on it. He really enjoyed it from Laughing Outlaw Records. And uh, at the same time as we got that note back from him, we got a heads up that Rusty Hopkinson from UMI uh, really liked it, and uh, he just started a label called Reverberation. Rusty and Stuart both lived in Sydney, so we had to make a trip down. So my partner, Shannon, and Benny, and myself, headed down to Sydney. And we caught up with both of them, had a few drinks, they were really cool. Uh, they are both kind of heroes of mine in a way. Stuart with his writing, and Ram, and Rolling Stone, and Rusty with his amazing knowledge of all music, and playing drums in UMI. It was cool. And in a weird kind of collaboration, we got both those guys to put the record out, which is a little bit odd, but it seemed to work. It was a good result for us. I mean, to hear that Rusty and Stuart both wanted to put out the record, it was a relief because we'd been working on it for a couple of years with only us and Wayne really hearing it, and it was really great to get some, uh, some positive feedback from someone completely outside that weren't involved in the band in any way that weren't part of the story. So, uh, yeah, it was a great time in the house making uh, half the first record, and it was a great time in the studio making the other half with Wayne. And then, yeah, the next thing, Stuart and uh, Rusty want to put it out, so it was a dream for us. The wheels were starting to turn. The record was recorded. We had a label or two labels to put it out, and uh, the last thing was just we needed to sort out the artwork. So Rusty Hopkinson did the layout and design, um, and Trina Lee, who was later Trina Fitzpatrick, Noel's partner, took the front cover pick, which was great. It was a family affair, as you'd expect. So we put the record out, and we got lucky. Triple J decided to put Patience back on rotation. It was uh, an unusual thing to be on the radio with a roots rocker like that. It sounded pretty unique on the radio and uh, opened up opportunities for us to tour and travel, which was great. It's probably, in a strange way, the most radio play we've ever had. And we got it right off the bat from our first single. And I assume we probably thought that uh, we'd get much more, but we didn't. <laughs> um, and some other things happened on the back of that. We got a couple of international supports, Gomez and Black Keys, so that was, that was good. And uh, we got some good reviews and press from it. Noel Mangle at the Courier Mail uh, started to champion the band, and that helped as well. Yeah, it did quite well. I think that kind of covers the record, other than maybe the songs I'm most proud of on it when I look at it now. I think that Seek Your Skyline is probably the song. It, uh, I've had one to focus on, that's kind of it. I think in my head at the time I was trying to write a classic country heartbreaker, like a George Jones type of song. I mean, it certainly didn't have the nuance of a George Jones song, but it was just a... It was really just a three-chord, straight-down-the-barrel ballad 
It had the feel. So in a way it was a swing and a miss, but there was something about the feel of it that was true. It was right. It was an ode to my hometown, Rockhampton, and it's been with me a long time. And each time I play it, I hear something new in it, something I hadn't heard before. And uh, I still enjoy playing it today. And we used some of those little tricks that I talked about earlier, that place. We kind of name-dropped some little spots around Rocky, like the Southside Mobile, which was a late-night place to eat after you'd been out. Good place for food or a fight. And uh, Chris put a lyric in there about Yeppin Creek. It's actually Yeppin Lagoon, but uh, hey, look, we had to lock into a rhyme scheme. And we also mentioned Depot Hill, which is a suburb on the south side of the Fitzroy River. It's a tough part of town where it floods a lot. They get the worst of the weather. But they're good people. I have family there. We also got to drop a line in about Big Star, about driving around town, listening to music. It was a good escape listening to music in Rocky. And the song reminds me of... Apart from cruising around Rockhampton late, late night, um, it reminds me of trips we used to do. Weekenders, where we'd drive to Brisbane, the 660Ks, load up on records at Rockin' Horse Records and Kent Records and Skinny's in Brisbane, to see a few bands and uh, drive back home. It was a pretty good time and uh, the song takes me there every time. So let's have a listen. This is CQ Skyline. And yeah, we are getting towards the end, but hang in there. There's a little bit more on the band and the record on the other side of the track. I wanna draw to my Nighttime CQ Skyline. I walk across that old bridge.
So that's pretty much it. Those are the people involved with making the first halfway record. The people outside of the band and in the band and uh, how and why we did it. It's a thing I'm still very proud of. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's held up pretty well. Even the scratchy songs that Benny and I recorded. Yeah, so if you get a chance, give it a play. Whether you're having listened for the first time or revisiting. Farewell to the Fainthearted by Halfway from 2004 oh yeah and the title Alwyn came up with that title our drummer um, just out of the blue rehearsal one day and uh, seemed to fit it perfectly so we went with it don't know where he got it from sometimes he just comes up with that stuff we'll talk to you soon signing off John from Halfway 20 stories up looking over Darwin Harbour in the middle of the coronavirus shutdown Thanks for listening to this story of Van Cult Halfway. Cheers. <laughs>